The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. All right. It's been a couple weeks, three weeks, I think, since we were last together. So let me do a quick review so you remember that we're in the New Testament and we're in the book of Revelation. And let's quickly remind ourselves what this book is about. Uh, What? Well, it's an apocalyptic prophetic letter. Remember? Apocalyptic, meaning that was a genre, style of writing that was very popular back then. Uh, Ezekiel, Daniel have sort of elements of apocalyptic literature. An apocalyptic document was a document that was highly symbolic, colors, numbers, beasts, all these symbolic things. It was the uh, one author uh, described it as maybe a modern equivalent might be a political cartoon where they sort of exaggerate features or whatever and, and they use, you know, as political cartoons, they're highly representative things. A lot of metaphors used and so on. That was an apocalyptic document a couple thousand years ago. But it's also prophetic. It was, it's God's speaking, foretelling and forthtelling. It was also a letter to seven specific churches. So it was historically rooted and grounded in responding to speci- specific historical incidences. Well, who? Well, the author was the Apostle John one of the 12 apostles. And when did he write it? Uh, scholars figure, though you can't pinpoint it exactly, but they figure sometime around 96 AD, meaning in the year of our Lord, 96. Um, and where? Uh, he was a political prisoner, and he was on the island of Patmos, which is just off the uh, coast of modern-day Turkey. It was sort of a, a first-century Alcatraz. It was a prison for political prisoners back then. Why was he in a political prison? Well, he refused to participate in the cult of Caesar worship, which was growing at that time. And the persecution of the church was beginning to intensify as the book of Revelation warns. And it's about to get much worse before it gets better. And so the revelation of Christ is Christ equipping his church for difficult days, providing information and truth and warning and encouragement. Oh, so far, where have we journeyed? So far, let me take you on a two-minute journey through the first 13 chapters. Um, We began with Christ's specific messages to each of the seven churches. And then, after that, John is ushered into, in the Spirit, into a vision before the throne of God. Now, keep in mind, this is a vision. There is not a physical throne of God, because God is not a physical being. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So don't think that there's a place somewhere with a big physical golden throne that God is sitting on. God's not sitting on a throne. God doesn't have a body. He is spirit. And so this is a symbol. This is a vision that he's seeing, okay, before the throne of God. And then he's told that he will be shown what must take place after this, so what's going to be happening. And then he sees him who sits on the throne, and he sees a scroll in the hand in this vision of the one sitting on the throne. And John anticipates that that scroll contains the sovereign plan of God for his creation. What must take place after this? So John's excited. Oh man, there's the scroll. And on that scroll, in that scroll, is everything that's going to soon take place. This is exciting. It's going to be revealed to me. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals, seven blots of, of clay, if you can think in those terms, sealing the scroll shut. And then, but no one in all of creation is found worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. So John's distraught at this. He begins to weep. He's disappointed. Uh, And then someone says, don't weep. Look, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John's excited. Woohoo! The lion of the tribe of Judah, a term for the Messiah. He has triumphed. He is able. So then John looks and expecting to see a lion, he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, meaning with blood on it, standing at the center of the throne. If that's not a, 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 you know, people say, well, the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. Oh, seriously, have you ever read Revelation? The lamb at the center of the throne with people worshiping him. Then the seven seals are opened and each seal unleashes an experience upon the earth designed to lead people to repentance. And then the seventh seal, as it is opened, it unleashes seven trumpets. And each trumpet, again, this is apocalyptic, very symbolic. Each trumpet, as it sounds, unleashes further and more intense experiences. So that the dial is ratcheted up. The seals experience some unle ex unleash some experiences. The trumpets dial it up a bit, and they experience uh, more, more experiences are unleashed. Again, designed to lead people to repentance. And then interspersed, so we've got the, the, the seals. Is that seven? No. We've got the seven seals on the scroll. That's clearly a scroll. And, and then we've got the seven trumpets. Okay? Clearly a trumpet. And interspersed within these seals and trumpets are three unique visions. Okay? We won't discuss the, the chronology here today, but we're just reviewing here. And these visions were kind of designed to answer the question, why is there so much turmoil on the earth? Why are God's people being persecuted? And these three unique visions sort of give the backstory. There's the vision of the woman and the dragon. And that tells the story of God's people and the Messiah and Satan's angry pursuit of, of the Messiah and then of God's people who follow the Messiah. You wonder why things are happening on the earth? Because the dragon, Satan, is angry because he knows his time is short, so he's pursuing God's people because he couldn't harm the Messiah, so he's trying to harm the Messiah's people. And then there was the, the vision of the, the, the dragon and the two beasts um, and sort of a counterfeit trinity, Satan, the dragon, and his two beasts, the political beast and the religious beast. The beast and the false prophet, as some refer to them, okay? And they, it's the story of their attempts throughout history to deceive the world and to, to destroy God's people. And then there's the vision of the 144,000, which symbolically depicts those who are martyred for their faith and how they're safe in the presence of God and will ultimately triumph. And this brings us to chapter 14. As we pick things up today, the intensity gets ratcheted up another notch. We saw the intensity of the seven seals. We saw the intensity then increase with the seven trumpets. Today, we're going to see the ultra intensity of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Let's pick it up. Revelation chapter 14. First, it begins with a bit of an interlude, starting at verse 1. Let's read verses 1 to 5. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. 
These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So we have the Lamb and the 144,000. And as your outline says, you've been waiting all this time for that phrase. As your outline says, John revisits the symbol of those who were martyred. So he revisits the symbol of those who were martyred, the 144,000. He says, these are those who didn't defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. What's that all about? Well, as your outline says, this is likely, we're not positive, it's likely a mixture of symbolic imagery tied to the ancient expectation of soldiers in a holy war. That's that next blank. So soldiers in a holy war and the linkage of idolatry with adultery. Okay, so it's probably a, a mixture of symbolism here of soldiers, We'll talk about this in a moment. The expectation of soldiers in a holy war and the linkage of idolatry with adultery. At that time, when there was a holy war going on, um, soldiers were expect, expected to not have sexual relationships at all. You, you think of this back with David and Bathsheba and when and David brings uh, was it Uriah? Uriah. Uriah back from the battle and says, you know, go have, have sex with your wife. David's trying to cover his tracks. And the man says, no, I, I can't do that. I, I, I'm on duty. And so there's this, this sense that, that uh, you know, it's not that sex was bad. It was just the sense of setting oneself apart for a unique purpose at that time. And idolatry is often linked with adultery uh, in, in the Old Testament. So it's probably a mixture of those metaphors that these folks remained pure. They, they were not idolatrous, okay? Uh, they, they were pure towards God in the midst of a world that was idolatrous. And what does it mean when it says there are no lies are found in their mouths, they're blameless? Are they perfect? No, again, this is apocalyptic language in the context of those who have been martyred. These people told the truth about Jesus to the very end. They didn't lie and say, no, he's not God, he's not my Messiah. They were blameless. No lie was found in their mouths to the very end. They told the truth to death. All right. Let's pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their head, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever." There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And now, what we're dealing with here is the three angels, Okay. And as your outline says, these angels are preparing us for the final round of seven judgments on the earth. 
First of all, the first angel offers the final, judge, final opportunity to experience God's grace. So the first angel offers the final opportunity to experience God's grace. Then the second angel declares God's final judgment over the satanic kingdom. That's the next blank, satanic kingdom. So there's God's grace is offered, and then the final judgment over God's final judgment over the satanic kingdom. Third, the third angel declares the final outcome for those who give allegiance. Allegiance, spell that for some. Allegiance. Who give? That's an A there. Who give allegiance? Okay, to the satanic kingdom. So they link themselves to the satanic kingdom. Now, what's this talk of burning sulfur in the presence of God and smoke and torment and so on? John's grasping for words here. He's giving expression using the only kind of language he has to communicate a horror. A horror of a being, a being, by the way, who is made in God's image to be in relationship with God. The horror of that being actually being separated from that God forever. So let's not lose sight that this picture is embedded in an apocalyptic document in the middle of a vision filled with all kinds of other bizarre and horrific and clearly symbolic pictures here. And John's being a realist in verse 12. Faithfulness to God in a world that's under the influence of Babylon, the satanic kingdom, is going to mean more martyrdoms. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And John's laying that out in verse 12 there. Let's keep going. Revelation 14, starting picking up at verse 14. He says, uh, Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. And I looked, and uh, there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. This is what's referred to as the grain harvest as your outline says. And it appears that these verses depict the final gathering of those who respond to the gospel. So this is a positive harvest. It's the final gathering of those who respond to the gospel. Now, scholars are a little divided on to whom this passage refers, meaning some think it's an angel, while others think it's describing Christ. Um, so there's that term, one like a son of man. That's either a description... Um, okay, a description meaning a human-like appearance, one like a son of man, a human being, or it's a title. Uh, a son of man was, uh, was a messianic title rooted in, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, and it was Jesus' favorite reference for himself. Interestingly enough, the early church never picked up on it. The early church didn't refer to Jesus as the son of man. They would call him the son of God, the Messiah, but it was Jesus used that apocalyptic title for himself when he walked the earth. So it's either a, a, a description of him, human-like appearance, or it's a title, or it could be a blend of both, a description and a title together. But as I look at this, you know, so one like a son of man, uh, seated on a white cloud, so that's a heavenly source, with a crown of gold on his head, that symbolizes royalty. Well, if this isn't Jesus, who is it? 
right? It's, it's someone like a son of man. It's either a description or a title. Both apply to Jesus. Seated on a white cloud coming from heaven with a gold crown. So royalty from heaven with son of man, that's Jesus, in, in my opinion, in the opinion of most scholars and any scholar who's right. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Okay, let's keep reading, starting picking up verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, which is where this would normally happen. And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a dis distance of 1,600 sadia. Now this is the trampling of the grapes. It appears that these verses depict the final judgment of those who reject the gospel. Some disagree with that. Some think this is actually a depiction uh, of Christ's death on the cross and blood uh, you know, spreading to the world. I don't think so. Most scholars don't seem to agree with that. It appears to be a, a balance or you know, the other side of the coin of the grain harvest. So the people who accepted and now those who rejected. This is those who rejected the gospel. 1600 stadia is the traditional length of Palestine, of modern Israel, from the top to the bottom. Strictly... Traditionally, what they would say, 1600 stadia. It's also, again, using symbolism of numbers in, in apocalyptic documents. It's 40 times 40. 40 being the traditional number of sinful disobedience. 40 days in the wilderness, 40 years, and so on. Um, so the traditional number of sinful disobedience. So in other words, as your outline says, the final judgment is extensive. 40 times 40. Disobedience times disobedience. Now, this last portion of the trampling of the grapes we just read, it sets the table for the next portion of the revelation, the pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath. Grapes and wine press and wrath were common metaphors in the Old Testament. Let me read from Isaiah 63, verses 3 and 6. It says, I have trodden the wine press alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered on my garments and I stained all my clothing. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. So this imagery was very common in the Old Testament. And you know, we have the grapes of wrath and the battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's from this passage here in Revelation. So then we get the seven bowls of God's wrath, picking it up in chapter 15. So after an excursion that unpacked the content of the previous sevens, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, John now describes the final series of sevens. The intensity is increased with each cycle. This final round has the highest intensity. The previous cycles were for the purpose of bringing about repentance. This cycle isn't about repentance. This cycle is about God's judgment, God's wrath. By the way, God's wrath is not God losing his cool. God's wrath, wrath isn't God just going, oh, I can't take it anymore. No, that's not what wrath is. Wrath is holiness in action. Wrath is his strong and, op and settled opposition to all that is evil. 
This final cycle is for the purpose of final judgment. So let's pick it up, Revelation 15, starting at verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. And here's the song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So as your outline says, those who were martyred by the beast now celebrate at the judgment of the beast. They were martyred by the beast. Now they're finally celebrating as this beast is judged. So the martyrs, past and future, are pictured here as they're about to view God's final judgment upon the powers that tortured and killed them. It says they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Uh, so it's talking about the final plagues here. The final plagues we're about to see would really echo the plagues against Pharaoh. You see great similarities and overlapping. And the martyrs sing by the sea just as Israel sang by the Red Sea in Exodus 15. And the song they sing here emphasizes God's nature and the proper response to God. Um, if you look at the song, it's, I underline the words that emphasize his nature. Almighty, just, true, holy. Okay, So it's emphasizing his nature and how we should properly respond to this incredible God. Verse 5 to verse 8. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So, number two on your outline. The angels prepare to unleash the seven bowls of wrath. They're preparing to unleash the seven bowls here. And verse eight here, some symbolically communicating the awe and the reverence around what is about to take place. And then number three, the seven bowls are then poured out. Notice there's no content in the bowls. It's just an expression of God's wrath. Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 is the next portion. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, notice that chapter 15 was all about what John saw. Chapter 15, 1 says, I saw in heaven. Chapter 16, the bowls, begins with, then I heard. Now this seems to echo the words of Isaiah 66, 6, uh, where it says, hear the uproar from the city, hear that noise from the temple. It's the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all that they deserve. 
So the first four bowls mirror the first four trumpets. It's land, sea, rivers, sun. Only this time with increased intensity. So as your outline says, the first bowl soars upon those who worship the beast. Soars upon those who worship the beast are unleashed. And then the second bowl, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. Well, the second bowl, the sea turns to blood. The sea turns to blood. Then the third bowl we find in verses 4 to 7. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You are and who... You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond. So again, this is symbolic. The altar is talking, a piece of furniture. I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So the third bowl, the fresh water rivers and springs turn to blood. And then as your outline says, recognizing the awfulness the angel reminds us of the justice of this moment. Recognizing the awfulness of what's happening here, the angel interjects and says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, this is horrible, but you are just to do this, God. You've given them every opportunity. These are the people who killed your people and your prophets. You're just in doing this. Revelation 16, verses 8 to 9. Let's keep reading. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So the fourth bowl, the sun increases in intensity. The sun increases in intensity. And as your outline says, notice this, the stubbornness of the people is evidenced in their refusal to repent. Their refusal to repent. Let me read you a quote from uh, one of the scholars I was studying, Dr. Gordon Fee. He wrote this. He says, Rather than seeing the hand of God in all this as a call to repentance, instead, they cursed the name of God, whom they instinctively recognized as the one who had control over the plagues. Nonetheless, this recognition of the divine origin of these plagues leads not to repentance. No, rather, they refuse to repent and glorify God. At this point, John is affirming a common reality, Fee says, that even though people wish to live totally apart from God, nonetheless, when things go against them, God's the one they blame. I don't know if you've ever seen or heard of the drama Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. It's traveled the world, really, and it's seen hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people saved. Um, Well, that drama was actually based in the church I pastored before I was at Broadway Church in the Niagara region. It came out of that congregation. And the head of that, uh, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, the head office was right there in that congregation. And um, when he was doing a rewrite of it, I remember sitting down with him and saying, Rudy, I said, there's one part of your drama that bothers me. I said, because if you're familiar with the drama, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, um, individuals, it's depicted, they're living their lives, and you see these people live their lives, and then they die, and then they're ushered before the throne of God. And depending on whether they're followers of Christ or not, they're either ushered into heaven or into hell. 
And it's very dramatic. And, and there are some scenes, or in all the scenes, when people would go into hell, what they would do is they would be begging God, no, no, please, no, I'm sorry, I'll repent, I'll repent, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And they're dragged literally by demons in this drama into hell. And as you're watching that, you're thinking to yourself, man, God's cruel. Like if that was me, and those were my kids, and they're begging and promising they'd repent, I'd say, all right. But God's such a mean, heartless, unloving I said, Rudy, I said, I've always had trouble with that because I don't think what you're depicting is actually what's in the Bible. I said, as I read scripture, people, when they're before God and they're, they're being sentenced, they're not begging. They're still cursing. The nature of sin is revealed at that moment. And so what he did in the one that, I don't know if he's still done it. Now that I'm gone, maybe he's reverted back. I don't know. But in his new version that he did, it was the people would then curse God as they're being dragged into, into, uh, away from God's presence. Because that is the nature of sin. That's what sin does. Let's keep reading. Chapter 16, verses 10 to 11. It says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent at what they had done. The fifth bowl, the throne of the beast is destroyed. The throne of the beast is destroyed. Again, the stubbornness of the people is evidenced once again in their refusal to repent. They still refuse to repent. Verses 12 to 14 with the sixth bowl. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Pause there for a moment. Remember, the Romans dread, feared the Euphrates River drying up. They feared an invasion from the east. This was in their psyche and being played on here. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. There's that unholy trinity. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather, uh, to gather them for the battle of the great, uh, of the, on the great day of God Almighty. Let's pause there. So, no, let's, yeah, let's pause there. The sixth bull. God sets the scene for a final cataclysmic battle. Final cataclysmic battle. Setting the scene here. And as it says in your outline, the unholy trinity stirs up the people for the battle. So the unholy trinity stirs up the people for this battle. Now this final battle is described later in chapter 17 to 19. Okay, So we'll, we'll get to it then more. Let's keep reading. There's a brief interlude. He, he follows the pattern he did with the seals and the trumpets. Between the 6th and the 7th, there'd be a brief interlude. He did it each time. He's doing it again here. This one's so small, you barely even would notice it. Uh, but let's read verses 15 to 16. Um, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Again, following the same pattern he used with the seals and the trumpets, John has a brief interlude between the 6th and 7th in the sequence. He calls God's people to remain watchful and ready. He then names the place of the upcoming final battle. The name Armageddon literally means Mount Megiddo. Now, strictly speaking, geographically speaking, there is no such place. 
in our trip to Israel, which you're welcome to come and join us, um, we will be going to Megiddo, uh, and we'll be going to that field uh, of Megiddo, and, uh, which is an incredibly famous field in the history of Israel. Battles were fought there, and it's the, the, the plain of Armageddon is what they often call it today. But it's not called the Mount Megiddo, it's Tel Megiddo. It, it, it's a city, a tell. Whenever you see the word tell, like Tel Aviv or something, tell is the Hebrew word for a, a mound that's man-made. So cities, back in those days, when a city was defeated, you just built on top of it. And when that was defeated, you just built on top of the rubble. And that became a tell. It's called a tell, T-E-L, not two L's, one L. And so Tel Megiddo is... When you go there, you have to drive up and you climb up and we'll go there and you're on top of this city. Uh, so the ruins are kept built one on top of the other. Um, so, but it's not Mount Megiddo. There is no such thing as Mount Megiddo. So he's made up a name here. There is no such place. So as your outline says, opinions vary as to whether or not this is an apocalyptic symbolism or if there's a literal final battle in a literal geographical place. So is this just apocalyptic symbolism or is there a literal final battle in a literal final geographical place? You could make a strong argument for either one. You decide which you think is true. Okay? Intelligent, godly people disagree. Chapter 16, verses 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away from the mountains, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. The seventh bowl, into the air it's poured, causing worldwide catastrophes. Worldwide catastrophes are caused by the seventh bowl, as it's just poured into the air. As your outline says, Satan's political and religious systems, that's Babylon the Great is what that symbolizes, and capital city is destroyed. It's destroyed. And the last blank, the stubbornness of the people is again evidenced in their continued refusal to repent. Now here's the thing. All of this is not the final judgment, but only a prelude, a ramping up to it. These seven bowls of God's wrath merely soften up Babylon, the, uh, Babylon for God's final judgment, which we'll look into next week. We're going to begin what we're calling, and one author calls, and I'm copying, the tale of two cities. We're going to see the tale of Babylon the Great, and then in the last week, the tale of the New Jerusalem, the tale of two cities. Let's open this up for questions now about what we learned today. Any questions about what we've discussed in the last uh, 40 minutes? No, wow, I am that clear, profound as a teacher. Thank you, Bob, for acknowledging I'm not that clear. <laughs> I love you, Bob. John, here we go.
Okay, get to the question, John. Okay, you're misquoting scripture. It doesn't say I repent because I betrayed. He just said I have betrayed innocent blood. It doesn't say I repent. That's Judas. You're quoting Judas, yes. But he didn't repent. It just says I betrayed innocent blood. He threw the money down on the ground. But it doesn't say he repented. Good question. But don't ever misquote scripture to me again, John. <laughs> God bless you. Other questions? Yes. Okay. The question here is, is this the 144,000 that the, um, uh, there's a, a cult that we won't name, but the initials are JW. <laughs> um, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim are the 144,000 that go to heaven. This is where they get it. Actually, they get it a little bit earlier in the book of Revelation where it's mentioned. Um, but they'll, they'll claim and I'm not really, I don't, haven't studied JW theology in about 20 years, but essentially there's that special 144,000 that live in heaven with God, and then the rest of us, if we don't make that cut, then the rest of us kind of live on earth. Um, but yes, that's where they get that, um, that portion from this 144,000. Any other questions? Yes, sir. A physical place. It didn't say it wasn't real. It's not physical. Yes. Where did you get the idea angels have eyes? Ah, so they can take on human appearance. Symbolically, yes. So we're, we're so the question is, let me. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So the question is, hey, listen, Darren, you said that heaven's not a physical place, but angels have eyes, and the beings around the throne have several eyes all over, and. What will it be like then? Will we interact or will we see things and so on? Is that the gist of your question? If I, okay. So, again, we're dealing with an apocalyptic document. And so we have to let scripture translate scripture. So we, we need to understand that John, Jesus via John, is speaking in terms that we can understand. It's just like the hand of God and the arm of God is not too short. Does God have an arm? No. Do you have a hand? No. Um, well, but, but it says he does. No, but it's, it's, you need to interpret scripture according to its genre. And so that's a metaphor. He's speaking to us what's called anthropomorphically in a way that a human can understand, giving human qualities to something that doesn't itself have human qualities. But so that we can understand. When we hear his arm is not too short, what we're hearing is God is powerful. He can do it. And in the same way, so the Bible is describing these beings and these uh, in, with 
eyes under their arms and all over and wheels attached to them. Again, as we said at the beginning of this uh, study, these are apocalyptic images. They're visions and they're fluid and they're all symbolic. So have angels taken on human form? Yes, they have. But that's the key. They've taken on human form. Angels existed before the creation of the world because they were there at the creation of the world. So angels pre-existed the material realm. So angels are spirit beings and uh, that can take on human appearance just like the son of God, Jesus, is the son who is spirit who took on human flesh. Okay? Now angels taking on flesh and the son taking on flesh are different. Jesus literally incarnated. He literally um, added the nature of humanity to his divine nature. Angels seemed to just like appear and, and they didn't, weren't literally human beings from birth and so on. They just would appear in human form. But so, in, in, in the heavenly realm, how will we interact? Well, here's the difference. Right now, when people die, they become, remember, we are spirits, we live in a body. When I die right now, if I were to die today, my spirit would depart from my body. I would be a disembodied spirit. And right now, everyone who is deceased and is a follower of Jesus is a disembodied spirit somehow in the presence of God. Don't think geographically. You say, how can we not? That's where human beings, we live in space and time. So all we've ever known is space and time. But this is another dimension now. So somehow they are in the presence of God. Not spatially, because it's a spirit. Spirit isn't a physical thing. So space and time is not relevant here. So they are somehow relationally present with God. But there's coming a day when this spirit, this mortal will put on immortality. And, and this, this, so that spirit will then be given again a glorified body. So yes, then we return to God's original design to us. So heaven itself, the throne room of God and so on, are metaphors. They're, they're pictures for us to understand God's center of, of justice, God's center of dominion. Are they physical places? No, because God's not a physical being. Um, in the future... When we get our glorified bodies, will we interact physically? Yes, because we will be back to what our original design was. God's original design for humanity is not Eastern mysticism, where you know our bodies are bad and someday when we can finally get rid of our bodies, yes, that's the ideal. No, that's not a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is a spirit in a body. That's what it means to be human. And so someday we'll, we will return to God's original, original design. Our pure spirit will then be given a pure glorified body and forever we will exist in that realm. But it'll be like a supernatural realm, meaning Jesus had a glorified body. And look, at he could appear and disappear in a room. He's with the disciples. The doors were locked. Remember, they made a point of stipulating that. The doors were locked and he appeared. And then he disappeared. And so um, there's this realm of a glorified body will be physical, yet it'll be of another dimension at the same time. It's fascinating. So great question. Do angels, are they physical beings? No, they're spirit beings. Who can take on physical appearances to interact with humans? Um, will we in the future though, will we be physical beings? Yes, but not like we are now with another added dimension. Okay? Hopefully that answers. Good. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, my friend. Uh, next week, we continue on. And we're going to look at the tale of the destruction of the city of Babylon, the, the metaphorical city. God bless you.